Welcome to Zeitgeist with Zach Geist. I'm your host, Zach Geist. This show is made possible by Student Loan Tutor, which you can find at studentloantutor.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment and give us a review. Thank you. Welcome to Zeitgeist with Zach Geist. Today I have Phoenix Aurelius, uh, who is a real modern-day alchemist and uh, here in Utah, of all places, and he's well-known throughout at least the United States that I know of. I've heard about him uh, even outside of, uh, uh, of Utah. I was at Elixart in uh, uh, Nevada City, and I heard that you had helped them with some of their potions that they make there. Uh, which is a very magical place, Nevada City. It centers around Ecstatic Dance, Nevada City, which is this small town. It's like, I don't know, 10,000 people, maybe less than that, maybe 5,000 people in the whole town. And then Ecstatic Dance will have over 400 people at it. And then afterwards, instead of going to the bar, everybody goes to this place called Elixart, where they make elixirs. And here I'm looking at Phoenix today. And in the background on here, I was going to do this in person, but time didn't let, allow that to happen. So we'll likely do another podcast in person and, and accompany it with a YouTube video. And in the back, I could see all sorts of al- alchemical vessels. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, very, it seems like I've gone back in time with a computer and, uh, and, and recorders somehow to uh, hopefully reignite the magical realm of being and how and to talk about how alchemy pertains to every human being and how they could use uh, practical alchemy as well as psychological alchemy and how these all weave together uh, and how the world is con- how the universe is connected uh, in all sorts of ways that we've artificially uh, created ar- arbitrary separations between different areas like this is the psyche and then this is alchemy and this is chemistry and this is uh, life and this is death and you know and using nouns instead of verbs because alchemy from what I understand is a is a living process um, and uh, yeah with all that said uh, Phoenix if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself and including anything that I left out there that you feel is pertinent to people that are listening to this uh, podcast that probably have very little understanding of alchemy or if they do have any understanding at all it's probably not from a practical perspective but instead. Uh, from a Jungian or psychological perspective? Sure. Well, first, thanks so much for having me on, Zach. And um, yeah, let me, let's just kind of hop right in, I guess, is that um, alchemy, realistically, like if we take a look at it very objectively and historically, alchemy really starts with being the art and science of transformation. That would be one of the most broad kind of definitions that we could give to get everybody on the same page. And what we have to kind of consider is that if alchemy is the art and science of transformation and everything that we know of in the natural world is never staying in the same form, meaning it's constantly transforming in a phase of evolution, then suddenly alchemy kind of takes center stage because alchemy is the expression and the process of these things in their natural state of evolution or transformation. So we know all energy is neither created nor destroyed. It's simply changing form, which is, say, transformed. And alchemy is the art and science of transformation. So ergo, alchemy really, at its core, undergoes and diagrams out the process of how kind of all energy works. So this is kind of the way that I like to start out for a lot of people. And when you get deeper into uh, various alchemical practices, 
you can change the context and thereby change the definition because people already have a certain sort of immersion into it. But we'll just go ahead and start here. So yeah, with that being said, um, I have been a practical alchemist, which is to say applying these processes to physical materials and watching the spiritual, psychological, and physiological changes that happen within myself as I work on these materials as a way of diagramming kind of our quantum consciousness or the quantum connection that people have. You know, we, we all talk about our inherent oneness, Zach. And, you know, what, what really separates or distinguishes an alchemist from anybody else is just simply understanding that the oneness exists in the transformational process that we are all undergoing. And so when we tap into that process, we're tapping into our unity in such a way that we are really sharing the lowest common denominator with all things. If I say, what does a bacteria, a virus, a mammal, a reptile, and a human all have in common? Really, the only lowest common denominator that we can really get down to is that we are all constantly evolving. We're constantly transforming and adapting based on our circumstances. And before the science of evolution was a term, Alchemy was a term that was very comprehensive and utilized multiple different methods of inquiry to arrive at answers that helped to explain uh, some of these connections. And I feel that some of the theories that were developed specifically by Paracelsus are very, very, very relevant to us today. Who's Paracelsus? So Paracelsus is a guy from the 1500s who was basically... If, if you go to medical school today, they're going to tell you he was a grandfather of modern medicine. He was the very first person in Western uh, medical history to have come up with the concept that disease could come from an outside source. Before that, it was just conceived that we had these uh, kind of four humors is what they were referred to. Uh, the phlegmatic humor, the bilious humor, um, the melancholic humor, and there's one more, oh, the sanguine humor. And these four humors uh, corresponded to the four Aristotelian elements to a certain degree. Aristotle's elements. Correct. Okay. And if a person was sick or had a disease, one or more of these elements was off. And so there um, traditionally were practices of uh, astrological judgment of the sick to determine which elements might be off. And then there was also things like um, the judgment of urine. Um, so you would smell, taste, look at the clarity, et cetera, et cetera, of urine uh, during the time of this, this medicine, which was called Galenic medicine. And it was the only approved medicine of the Catholic Church, you know, which was at this time the only church. Uh, Martin Luther was a contemporary to Paracelsus. So Luther, Lutheranism was maybe just brand new a couple of years into it and, and uh, kind of an emerging idea as opposed to something that people were really, and most people were still under the uh, indoctrination of, of the Catholic Church at that time. So Paracelsus said, hey, listen, your entire medical system is completely off. And the way he came to these conclusions was that one, he was raised by a physician in a tiny little town uh, in Switzerland called Einsiedeln. And inside of this town, he was eunuchized uh, as a very young child, because what does it was that also mean? A, Unicized uh, means his penis and or balls were castrated. Oh wow, that's what I thought you meant. Okay. Yes. Um, and so he was unicized by his father surgically, um, so that he wouldn't be tempted to sleep with any of the guests because they lived in a hotel. His mother died really early, 
and his father used him as a medical servant, being a surgeon. Now, uh, Paracelsus, it was said, was a bastard, um, so he didn't have inheritance rights of his father, so he couldn't just go to any university. He really had to earn his place. And so having grown up as a surgeon and already having skills uh, as a surgeon and as a doctor, he enlisted in the Swiss, um, Swiss Army. And this would have been roughly uh, 1501 to 1510. He would have been no more than about 14 to 15 years old, but he enlisted as a medic. And as uh, you know, as you probably know from history, the Swiss guard, even today, still guard the Vatican. And so the I didn't Swiss even Army, know that. I, I know about Vatican City and all of that and the walls around it, but I didn't know that they guarded the Vatican. So this is new insight. Yeah, well, well, now you do. I guess you learn something new every day. Hopefully we can keep those coming during this episode. But yeah, the Swiss Guard have always guarded the Vatican. They even wear these funny little suits and still have their old pikes and hatchets the way that they used to historically. And today I think um, the Swiss Guard guarding the Pope and, and things like that are more of a like a tradition rather than an actual practical thing because these guys are dressed like clowns and they certainly don't have like guns on them or anything <laughs> else. I'm sure they're well-trained, but still... You know what I'm saying? It's not like armed guard. They don't have like a drone controller in their hand or anything like that. Yeah, exactly. At least that we know of. There might be secret service behind it, but you know, at least the guys that are dressing up, they they look really silly. So, with that being said, um, the Swiss guard back in the day, the Swiss army was sent anywhere that the Pope said, "Hey, you're going there." They would fight. They were obligated to fight, and as a result. Paracelsus went all the way almost to India, into what is what was at the time referred to as the Persian Empire, and he saw everything from people fighting in the Ottoman Empire and all the way out into the Persian Empire and so on and so forth, and being able to learn uh, about healing from all of the other medics on the battlefield. Now, it's not like it is in the movies. Historically, medics always took an oath to heal people, so after a battle, all the medics from both sides would come out and you would heal indiscriminately. It didn't matter whether it was your side or the other side because neither side wanted heavy casualties. And it's also not like it's in, it is in the movies. Most people didn't die when they got wounded. They died like two to three weeks because of the poor care they got from treating the wounds. Hmm. So in that time, Paracelsus noted that in the Arabic countries and the Far East or Near East, he would see that the wives uh, who would usually come onto the battlefield as their medics would just clean their wounds and they would perform what they called ablution before treating any of them. And ablution is just a simple rinsing of the hands in water. They were even using dirty water, you know, but just doing that was helping to prevent the spread of infection massively. And instead of casting, because in Galenic medicine, the practice was, if somebody has a wound from a battlefield, you put a uh, plaster of Paris over it and kind of create a cast. Mm. But everybody's getting gangrene and then having to go amputations and then dying as a result of this. So Paris also saw that there were tons of problems with this. And he learned from all the sources practically by being a surgeon and a medic for the Swiss army for years and years and years. And then he came back to Switzerland and he was given uh, the university, I think it was at Zurich, in Switzerland, he was given a kind of professor emeritus status because one of the other professors really enjoyed him. 
And on his very first day, he took all of the books of Avicenna, who was, uh, his Arabic name would have been Ibn Sina. He was a, an Arabic scholar and uh, an alchemist and a, a physician and all of these other things. So Avicenna's books, and he took Galen's books himself, this Roman physician who expanded on Galenic medicine, and <clears throat> threw them in the fire and said, here's what I have to teach you because these books will teach you absolutely nothing. I will teach you the actual true merits of medicine. So from day one as a professional educator, he was very bold and very brazen and he didn't earn a whole lot of um, professional uh, accolades for that kind of behavior, especially because we're only talking maybe 50 years since the beginning of the printing press, right? So mm. books are very expensive. He was a very brazen character. But he was right. He said, I can cure anything. He was curing in those days plague. They said um, in multiple situations, he got brought to court and they said, oh, you think you're such a talented healer. We're going to go ahead and throw you into this situation and see if you can heal it. So he, they threw him into a, a colony of lepers one time and had 15 people who had leprosy and 12 of them walked away without leprosy at the end of a three-week period. And the others, he said, were beyond saving. What did he do? So, um, I'm pretty sure for leprosy, just like most other viral conditions, you take a poop pill, you take a tiny little amount of the infected per, uh, person's fecal matter and roll it up into what he would do as a little bread pill. And if the disease had a little bit too much digestive action, meaning that the person had loose stool or diarrhea or vomiting, then he was actually the inventor of laudanum, which was like the very first uh, pharmaceutical opiate that you could uh, refer to. And it's not common laudanum that was produced thereafter. It was actual Paracelsian laudanum. And it had like Turkish rhubarb and uh, Romania root, and, like 30 or 40 different zetoary, white zetoary root, all these different types of preparations that he had uh, found. And he put them all together with opium um, and compressed them together in this little pill. And he would put those together. And that's usually what ended up healing the majority of people. Even we have it on record that he healed multiple different principalities in Europe was even taken to court for such cases because, uh, they wouldn't end up paying, uh, the fee that he asked, uh, even though they had agreed to pay that fee before, but they said that they wouldn't pay that fee for one pill. And it was a sad case, actually, that the particular case I'm referring to because Paracelsus healed this prince where all the other physicians of the land had failed and had already been paid, but they had failed. Paracelsus came in in a single day when this prince was on his deathbed, gave him a, sing a single pill and it cured his condition. And they said that they would refuse to pay his fee, which all he asked for was the same fee that any other physician had asked for. It's fascinating. I run into this a lot of times where uh, people expect the cure to be something very difficult and treacherous and, co and complicated. I, I work in the magical symbols that Charles Eisenstein says, I work with the magical symbols of money and debt and, uh, and understand how to navigate these different matrices like student loans and taxes and debt and credit, yeah. credit companies and the credit reports and all of these things. And, uh, and oftentimes I share with people uh, something that would just completely, you know, with a matter of some paperwork, uh, change their life by a million dollars over the life of their loan term. And they just go, well, how you, I, I don't believe that that's just too good to be true. And I'm like, it's, it's math. Like I will show you how this works. Like you <laughs> could watch it works. Matter of fact, I'll put it in a paper and say, I'll guarantee it will do this or I, you don't pay anything and I'm going to do it for you. And I, and I, yep. and I see this, this situation. I feel like we're about to dig into the next question that I have is that where in the hell has alchemy gone? 
Oh, then now that, yeah, that's a perfect, perfect question. So from the time of Paracelsus, um, Paracelsus created his medical uh, philosophy, which is called spagyric medicine. And spagyric medicine is what I practice today. And I'm actually working very hard with clinical research to be able to legitimize spagyric medicine in the same way that uh, say Oriental or Chinese medicine or Ayurvedic medicine are acknowledged today uh, outside of the Western pharmacopoeia. And the reason is, is, is actually that the tradition has been very, very well preserved, but it's still very cryptic for those who don't have a lot of hands-on stuff. So here's how it happened. Paracelsus created spagyric medicine, and for the next 50 to 150 years after his death, spagyric medicine became the main medicine that people were using to heal things like syphilis, plague, um, leprosy, of course, you know, even just common disorders uh, and mental diseases and things like this. What year and is this again, Phoenix? So Paracelsus uh, published his work in the 1530s. Okay. Uh, he started publishing in like 1530 and ended publishing, I think, in 1537. And he was killed. Uh, they bludgeoned him in the head. He died with blunt trauma to the head. Um, so he, he was just a little too progressive for his time, but his students, uh, took all of his written works because he's a very prolific writer and started practicing them. And before, um, before 1400 and really by 1408, you see these ideas spreading from Switzerland where he was primarily, uh, into Germany and into France and into England. And today there are two books, uh, one called the English Paracelsians and the other called the French Paracelsians that outlies uh, all of the major Paracelsian physicians of that time and the extraordinary works that they were doing from a medical and scientific history perspective um, and how that ultimately came to uh, define and create a revolution for the, the scientific revolution, so on and so forth, that, that ended up happening. But when the scientific revolution happened, so we're talking now about 1780s, you know, 1750 to, to 1780s, where these ideas are really starting to catch on, um, the scientific revolution and people like von Helmont and, and Baptiste and others, they're starting to come to the realization that there are many other elements besides these four elements. And it kind of strays that that was kind of that very beginning concept of there are four elements of fire, air, water, and earth, and then people discovering that, well, there's actually oxygen like Lavoisier did and all these other, it comes to this head where people threw the baby out with the bathwater altogether. And they said that because alchemists in the Western tradition had been so tied up with religious reasons or philosophies for why things worked, that they didn't stand up to the scientific revolution that was happening at the time. So even though the medicinal practices worked, they threw out the whole concept of alchemy. They took the what they would call chemistry at that point, C-H-Y-M-I-S-T-R-Y, and they would take the chemistry or the chemi that was actually demonstrable and provable and had elements and so on and so, you know, chemicals that we could work with, hmm. regions, and it delineated from that point onwards. So now, it sounds like they sequestered it. So they said, we're just taking this one element of alchemy, the rest is gone. It's almost like yeah. it lost its living spirit in a way, its connection to all the other aspects of life, to religion, which religion is like from religare, which means like, I think to be like yes. combed in with and one with. It's an experience of being like that thing I originally, what I thought our topic was going to probably go towards, and it may still, this idea of 
Participation Mystica, I believe is how it's called. Yeah, but I I just wanted to chime in with that to like keep this, make sure I'm still with you here because this is a, this is very different material. It's like this, this information has been relegated to the realm of unicorns and tooth fairy and Santa Claus and what people used to do a long time ago. And, uh, and what you're suggesting is that is not at all the case. And as a matter of fact, what we're looking at is a reemergence of alchemy, both in the practical standpoint, as well as our relationship with alchemy, being human beings participating in this experience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The very well put too, is that, you know, realistically, so once the Paracelsian physicians kind of died out, the scientific revolution took over, Alchemy was still preserved, but it couldn't be preserved mainstream. And so it got preserved inside of what we today would refer to as secret society. So some of the Freemasons would take that information and incorporate it into what they called the Rose Claw uh, order. And so would uh, an entire order called the Kabbalistic Order of the Rosy Cross would uh, come up or the KORC in France. And uh, they came up and they claimed uh, descendancy from, you know, a 1500s document uh, called the Confessio Fraternitatis, which is um, basically the Rosicrucian Confession, the Rosicrucian Manifesto, if you want to refer to it as that, uh, written or authored by this uh, individual who identifies himself as Christian Rosenkreutz. Hmm. So uh, at any rate, they had... They, the Rosicrucians really, really, really took all of the principles and all of the cosmology of alchemy at that post-Paracelsian period, and they preserved it, and they kept it inside of the cosmology and inside of the practices of all of their degrees for hundreds of years. So, you you know, we're fast-forwarding now to the 19th century occult revival. This is, you know, the 1850s through 1880s, and really even into the beginning of the 1900s, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of people who are practicing practical laboratory all across Europe uh, in the ways that the alchemical texts of the Renaissance had talked about because the Rosicrucians had preserved all of the terminology and laboratory practices and uniquely enough had adapted the laboratory practices from the labware that was being used pre-18th century to the labware that was now being produced into the 19th and early 20th century. And so we began to see this cool transition that happens where there was really no skip in technology. It, we've always maintained the technology. It's just that we went underground for a long period of time. Now, in the it early reminds of- me of the Gnostic Gospels, right? So you have the Christian tradition as it is now of kind of the Bible is literal and then you have the Gnostic Gospels, which talks about the the Bible as symbolism and this idea of gnosis and this process of of being connected with uh, a deeper a deeper knowing that, that was found at like I forget what it's I've only read it. it's like ad hominon or not I forget how to say that where it was found but that's in that's in this last century that in the 1900s that this happened and it sounds like alchemy there was a a place where just like you know, things seem to go to sleep, you know, it's like, oh, you know, it's gone now. And, but it, it's somewhere it's living and it's waiting to reemerge, you know, it, it, and, and that's, I think maybe we're coming to a time now where a lot of these, a lot of these elements are coming back to life and people are seeing, and, and as they begin to emerge, some people go, well, wait a second, why are we even looking at this? This is, we've already decided that this has been thrown away completely. And, uh, but really it, it just had gone underground and it's coming back. 
that well and that's exactly right and so here's here's some fun story especially for any of your listeners here in utah this is kind of the part of the story that gets really fun is that in the late period of the 19th century occult revival the korc or the kabbalistic order of the rosy cross in france started having a lot of members who were flying back and forth from chicago in the united states and other places to london chicago new york lots of los angeles even lots of different types of places but chicago was really a main center at that time and one of those people was ralph spencer lewis and ralph spencer lewis was studying in france for quite a long time he suddenly got the idea and the premonition that he needed to be able to bring this wisdom to the united states so by the I forget what the actual title is, Grand Master of the Rosicrucian Order of the KORC, essentially. He was given permission to start his own order, which is still alive and well today in the United States, called the AMORC, or AMORC is what we call it, uh, which stands for Ancient and Mystical Order Rose Crucis, or the Rosy Cross. Um, and this order still teaches alchemy today, but when they very first started, it was said that it was part of some of the passing degrees that you had to be able to demonstrate your actual alchemical lab skill to Ralph H. Spencer Lewis himself. He passed these secrets on to his son, who became the second, I forget, I think they call it an ordinator or something. I forget what their imperator, I think it's an imperator, grand imperator, that they use the title of. There's probably nobody listening to this that would be able to correct you. <laughs> yeah, it could be true. You'd be surprised, though. Lots huh. of people, you know, lots of people are initiated, and you'd never know if you didn't ask. Hmm. Um, so, with that being said, uh, Ralph Spencer Lewis and Ralph H. Spencer Lewis and stuff, they, they essentially created the whole movement of Rosicrucianism here in the United States. And by, I want to say, 1940s, um, I don't know the specific date on this, but I want to say by the 1940s, they had actually moved from Chicago and went to San Jose, California. Hmm. And still today, there's Rosicrucian Park in San Jose, California, and uh, Dennis William Hauck, uh, who's authored The Complete Idiot's Guide to Alchemy, and he's also the president of uh, the International Alchemy Guild. He's written a couple of other books. I mean, he's, he's, he's got a very long, impressive list, but he actually is putting together another uh, laboratory there because in the 1930s through 1960s, or maybe it was the 1940s through 1960s, they had a laboratory there. And anybody who wanted to sign up for the laboratory classes who was part of the Rosicrucian order would be able to do so. And they studied under a guy whose last name I want to say was Graves. I think his name was Orwell Graves. And he was an absolutely fantastic alchemist. And he worked together with a guy named Frater Albertus, or Dr. Albert Rydell. And um, they started teaching laboratory alchemy classes. Well, before long, San Jose ran out of money or something for the classes to be sponsored at their place. And so Dr. Albert Rydell first moved to Colorado, tried to set up a little guild there. It didn't work. He was Mormon. So he moved to Utah, moved to Salt Lake off of 3300 South and 700 East, and he started the Paracelsus Research Society from 1960 to 1984 when he died. And it was the largest alchemical school in the world that people could come and actually study, and he trained hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of alchemists. And in fact, my own laboratory where some of it actually came from Frater Albertus himself, uh, 
by way of his office manager when he died she had a lot of dibs on it her and her husband they took uh, a lot of the pieces and when they got out of it when they were in their late 80s and early 90s they gave a lot of the pieces and library wear and stuff to me and uh that's how i have increased my path and really come to be initiated uh not just by reading and trying things which i also have done a great deal of and that was the majority of my my early days in this but i've really come to know what the tradition is what the history is how it came down to me from person to person to person to person going all the way back to paracelsus and so there is an actual viable laboratory alchemical tradition that is unified with the spiritual tradition and is unified with the psychological tradition that still persists today and people can get glimpses of that by just you know joining amorc or whatever and, and reading about their lessons in cosmology and whatever or by picking up a couple of modern day alchemy books there are plenty of them that are out there um or by actually you know tuning in performing some of the work themselves because a lot of it doesn't even require especially the early phases of it to prove some of these concepts to yourself it doesn't even require any lab work i mean if you have like mason jars and you know a couple of funnels and some coffee filters and stuff around you can get your hands dirty and, and really prove these principles to yourself and see that alchemy is a cosmology that is based on the natural observation the observation of the natural world and when we see the processes in action in materials where we are refining or exalting their medicinal virtue it ends up that if we're present with the process that those materials end up working on us more than we're working on them that's a profound insight it's so profound that i almost want to repeat it in a way that maybe uh is potentially easier to grasp for someone just coming at this i've spent maybe 40 or 50 hours researching alchemy from the the psychological realm and what brought me to this well what brought me to utah first and foremost was alchemy and people go what the hell what that's not what brought you here i thought you came here to do door-to-door sales or something in 2009 i actually got a phone call out of nowhere and it said zach we want your company to come do door-to-door sales in Utah. And I'm like, what? Why? Like, And they're like, we're going to pay you this crazy amount of money to do it. And we're calling it, wait for it, the Alchemy Project. And I'm like, all right, all right, Alchemy Project. What, what the hell does Alchemy have to do with selling you know, television, internet, and telephone door-to-door? And essentially what they were doing was uh, just putting tons of money at converting so many people uh, over to Comcast, and they had their lowest video penetration because all the door-to-door satellite dish companies are located here. So that's what brought me to Utah to begin with. I f- find that that's a wild synchronicity. And then me coming into contact with you with Noriana and the fact that I run an ecstatic dance when I never dance. I'm not a dancer. I don't DJ. I didn't DJ. None of that stuff. And then uh, what ended up happening is my back had given out completely, which sent me on a path of diving deep into. Uh, my past, which I chose to ignore. Um, I put uh, a seal on it, maybe a hermetic seal even, I don't know. And then eventually it exploded because it kept things kept going in but couldn't get back out. And uh, yeah, so what interested me in alchemy and what dove me into that 50 hours worth of, of uh, researching and reading the work of James Hillman and Carl Jung and uh, Marie-Louise von Franz uh, was trying to figure out how alchemy pertains to the psyche because what I'd find is I would constantly get stuck. 
I'd be going down a specific path and then I would get into this position. I would say this to myself a lot of times. If I could have done it, I would have done it already. And I would get essentially what I felt was is that like my model of the world and how I'm perceiving it, like I was in this linear rigidity and I could only go back and forth. And I think this is where like kind of like bipolar mania and depression comes from is it's missing an element. It's jolting back and forth. It's kind of like our, even our climate is gyrating in this way. And to think alchemically about our psyche is extremely valuable. And I said, and I, even in reading all of this, for some reason, I just never came across why the hell Jung dove into alchemy. And then a lot of this stuff is like reading alchemical texts and it just, you know, some of it seems like it means something, but you know, there's words like negredo and all these things. And I'm like, I don't know what that's, and it's the the cool part and the warm part and you mix it and you heat it and you, and I'm trying to figure out for the person that's listening to this, why a modern day person with no alchemical background that has even less attachment to alchemy, they didn't get called to Utah to do something named alchemy, uh, what, how they could apply this immediately, just this concept of alchemy prior to uh, working with it practically, which I want to tie in the practical element too, because I'm curious about that. And I felt drawn to reach out to you because I had this pull uh, to uh, reach out about the practical element, even though in all of the reading I've read, none of it has said to do anything, no practical alchemy. They're just using alchemy as symbols. And uh, which to me seems like, again, even they've sequestered the practical use of alchemy into this total realm of symbolism as opposed to an actual practice of alchemy. I mean, even if you look at from a Jungian standpoint, there's this idea of projection. And if you were projecting even in the experience with alchemy, there would be extreme value in this process. Well, yeah, well, that, that's really good, uh, actually, is that there is extreme value in the process because, you know, most people think that alchemy has something to do with turning lead into gold, and it's all about that. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, exactly. Now, I'll tell you that there are a series, when you undergo what's called initiatic path in alchemy, what alchemy is, is a way of working with the external world and recognizing it as part of your internal world. So we say that this leaf or this herb or this plant or this animal or this metal corresponds to a particular aspect of our consciousness because as human beings, we're very, very volatile species. We are made of thousands of thousands of different types of consciousness, metallic consciousness, mineral consciousness, protein consciousness, viral consciousness, bacterial consciousness, fungal consciousness, so on and so forth. We are not a single purity like a metal is. A metal is a single type of crystalline consciousness. That's all it's got one atom type. We have thousands of these different types of combinations inside of us. And so each of the things that are around us is part of the human experience. And in alchemical cosmology, humanity is therefore the pinnacle, so to speak, uh, of all of the rest of nature. And I think that it's self-evident that we are the only uh, species that is able to command nature and to understand it and grasp it in such a way that nature itself grasps and understands it in order to be able to steward the environment. We are not necessarily the effect of our environment. We can be if we choose to be, but we can alter the environment and work with the environment and steward is the highest calling in my opinion. We can steward the environment in order for the mutual betterment of all things. And ultimately alchemy at its very base is the art and science of being able to understand and master nature to transform elements or to exalt the 
um, expression of any particular species that you find in such a way that you demonstrate your mastery and your craftsmanship in working with the very same principles that nature herself works with. So the final process to this mastery is proving to yourself that you can take any of the baser metals and transmute it into gold because this is what's constantly happening. When you go into a gold mine, you will constantly find lead and you will find quartz. Sometimes you find a few other trace uh, minerals and metals like copper shows up in there, but you always find quartz, you always find lead. And so this is where the concept came from. It wasn't just that alchemists, uh, you know, just got, oh, let's transform lead into gold. No, nature itself is doing this. Now I can tell you already, nature is doing this by a microbial principle and that most of the conditions that these early alchemists were working with were in non-sterile conditions and the temperatures they were working at were very high. They were smelting metals, uh, combining metals with mercury and so on and so forth. And it's, it's yet unproven. I, I have yet to prove this, but I do feel that if and when the transmutations actually did happen, such as in the Flamel case uh, in France, that it must have been due to uh, microbial extremophiles being able to perform a microbial uh, decomposition of that material and perform what Dr. Lewis Kerverin wrote about in the 1980s in his scientific dissertation and books as a biological transmutation. And I myself have been able to take just simple soil bacteria from my backyard and be able to transform manganese into iron. And you can do this, the vice versa with this. So the concept of transmutation of, of lead into gold is actually a viable thing. And not only is it viable through electron uh, and particle colliders, but it's also viable through much uh, much more accessible pathways with lesser input and a much lengthier process, um, meaning lesser energy, more time. And current scientists are using less time, more energy. But it doesn't matter which route you take, every path ultimately ends to the same thing. So I myself have actually worked on the Flamel pathways. And um, I can tell you that I don't feel that the end substance is actually gold. Uh, it tests to have different electron structures. So it's not atomically gold, but it does look like gold. It does cast like gold at the same temperatures as gold. It's even purer than gold. Um, so there is a substance that can be made and whether it's gold or not, industrially, it's a very interesting substance. It's a substance yeah. that won't rust and tarnish and is able to bend and mold like gold, but it is slightly different than gold. Correct. But from Correct. a utility and standpoint, it may be equal or more practical for human beings to use in situations where they would normally use gold. What I can say is that from the alchemical perspective, gold is only good for gold making. And when you make gold making, then you have a purpose for using that gold. And the gold that we use can be turned into various different medicines. There's a quintessence that can be made from gold. Paracelsus also had a formula for what he called aurum potabile, which is like potable gold or drinkable gold, which is totally different than gold colloid, by the way, and mm. not at all like a uh, angstrom sized gold particle either. It's totally different. We also have the alchemical oil of gold and multiple different methods of pulling it and a number of different medicines that can actually practically be made from gold that heal things like scoliosis, uh, traditionally heal things like scoliosis, um, blindness, uh, certain types of brain damage, heart damage, congestive heart failure, arteriosclerosis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
So Phoenix, if alchemy is could work to help heal people, it's also extremely powerful from a psychological perspective to participate in watching something transform and to help us realize that human beings ourselves are a process. And that's a very liberating experience. I could tell you just from, you know, mystical experiences that I've encountered in my life or experienced or have found me. I don't know which direction we want to point it at because it's again, it's a process. It's not a cause and effect, linear Newtonian, you know, billiard ball type of approach. I don't exactly know what, what happened, you know, and uh, we're always missing little pieces of the elements of what makes something happen. Um, if this is so fascinating, why are why is why has it taken me thirty nine years and uh, to discover a practical alchemist? And where is alchemy in schools? And where, like, I mean, maybe in your world you hear a lot about alchemy, uh, but in traditional medicine, alchemy appears to be completely gone. I know you mentioned that it turned into chemistry. Uh, I guess I'm just as a listener, even learning this, I, I might be just still in one of these dumbfounded states. But I think someone listening to this, if I'm not honest about how dumbfounded I am that this has disappeared, uh, it's like finding out that there's a cure for opiates, which there is actually. It's called iboga or ibogaine. It cures opiate addiction almost 100% of the time. And it's a freaking root from Af- Africa that uh, I can't even say freaking. I don't even want to disrespect it like that. I, I, it just, I'm saying it to like talk, like it's so unbelievable that this is so, like, there, we're in Utah here. It's like Naxalone heals and, you know, don't use opiates. Like that works at all. Like it doesn't work to tell people not to use opiates. I, I got addicted to drugs uh, in order to mask emotional pain because I thought I was the pain. I didn't think the pain was a process bringing me into the unworld, putting me through an initiation to be able to turn my wounds into gifts. Those, that didn't occur to me. I didn't know about alchemical processes. I didn't know Ibogaine existed. I went back and forth trying to force my way off. And I mean, I had her, her clue. I can never say this word. Her claimant here. Her, Herculean, Hercules. He has a thing that he does. He forces his way through it. I did that, and uh, and it, you know, eventually broke my back. And um, and this has been what 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 emerged, what created the healing journey for me. But again, this is a this is a root. Somehow, this root spoke to people. the The mythological story is that a porcupine ate this root, and then the porcupine was ki- uh, hunted and killed, and then they ate the porcupine, and then all of a sudden, they were hallucinating. And the, and the, in the hallucination, the aboga said, take us, this is an initiatory process for the people of Gabon, Africa. And uh, essentially, this is this alchemical relationship with human, the human psyche, right, and, and the natural world. And this is what you're talking about as almost a, it's a medita- it almost sounds to me like it's a meditation it is a, a participatory thought experiment david bohm the theoretical physicist said that people say that they're thinking literally when in fact thought is participatory thought is a living it's bouncing off and our very thought is animated by our external environment our internal impulses our feelings our digestion the food we ate our upbringing the culture were raised in the dream from the night before. And this is a constant, our life is truly an alchemical process. Uh, I know that there's probably a couple questions in there, but I just want to like hand the ball, the proverbial uh, alchemical vessel back to you. <laughs> yeah, no, that's very good. Yeah. So um, let's, let's go back and let's start addressing the very first question. What would listeners who don't have any interest in getting into practical or laboratory alchemy uh, have to get from this? Well, I think we can all agree in the modern age that our current lives in the modern world feels rather soulless and it feels rather hollow. 
we have detached from spirit and we've detached from psychological awareness in our external world in such a vast way that we don't identify with the things around us because if we did, we'd constantly be identifying with suffering. And so, or exploitation or, you know, insert your verb here for what is actually happening in the world today. So, you know, realistically, alchemy and hermetic philosophy from the time of Paracelsus offers us this interesting way to look at all things. And it's that at its core, regardless of the way things are physically composed, because that's a whole different way of looking at it, from the level of concept, from the level of idea, everything is composed of three things. And those three things are soul, spirit, and body. And so everything, whether you pick an herb or whether you're talking about yourself or diagramming thoughts or emotions or whatever, everything has a soul, a spirit, and a body. And what the soul is, the, the alchemist called that sulfur. And that has nothing to do with chemical sulfur or brimstone or anything like that. Sulfur is a principle. It's an archetype. And what that archetype means is soul or suke in ancient Greek, which means psyche today. And so soul and psyche are the same thing. They're, they're Correct. Exactly. And what this is... So the soul be... is not gone. A lot of people go, well, there is no soul. People don't have a soul. Everybody's tabula rasa, meaning everybody comes in as a blank slate. However, those same people believe in a psyche, which really what they're believing in is the soul by another word. Well, see, and what I try and do, because alchemy has always been shaped by the beliefs of those that have utilized it as a culture. So the Arabic alchemists imposed uh, reasonings for their works based on things that were written about by uh, Muslim prophets and, of course, by uh, by uh, Muhammad and by others. And it was very Allah-based. And Western Western alchemy was very Christian. And, you know, Indian alchemy of the Rasa Shastra tradition is very tied into, um, you know, the Vedic texts and, you know, the Chinese. So they, they have their Taoist texts. And it's all, essentially, they're all very similar practices or working on very similar principles. And the only difference is the way that they conceptualize it. So the, what I'm talking about isn't universal across the world. What I'm talking about is kind of the way that Paracelsus conceptualized it based on how the tradition came to him from the Arabs, from the ancient Greeks, and before that, according to uh, history, from, Ari, uh, from sorry Hermes himself. And that's the reason we call it Hermetic Wisdom. But what ended up happening is Paracelsus says that everything has a soul and this is the essence of uh, the material. It's like, so for instance, in the plant world, if a plant yields the essential oil, that's what is called its higher soul or its volatile soul. And we still use the term in chemistry, volatile oil to discuss the term essential oil. Um, and then we also have a crude extract that can be made either by water or whatever. And this, that's called its fixed soul. Now, You've probably seen a lot of essential oils. They don't have a whole lot of color to them, but they have a lot of scent and all of the essence of that plant, thus the term essential oil. And have you ever taken like a CBD extract or hemp extract or anything like that? Yeah, I have. Okay, so that's what in, in we would call that grade of medicine a fixed sulfur in the spagyric or the alchemical tradition is like it's a hemp extract. It's And you probably saw that it has all of the colors of the plant. It has some of the taste of it, but it's not like an essential oil of the plant at all, right? Yeah, it's thicker too, from whatever. Yes, much thicker, very yeah. viscous. So these two grades show up in everything that we extract in the laboratory, a volatile sulfur and a fixed sulfur. And what that tells us is that there's two levels to the soul. 
there's our higher soul and our lower soul. So when I take a look at you, Zach, your hair color, the color of your eyes, the color of your skin, the clothes that you're wearing, the sound of your voice, uh, things like those, that's going to be stuff that you can't change that's inherent with who you were and, and kind of born as a person to a certain degree. And that would be called your fixed sulfur. That's kind of like your CBD extract, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, your essential oil is going to be your thoughts. That's going to be your interests. It's going to be your talents. It's going to be all the things about you that I can't see. What does Zach's sense of justice look like? That's contained inside of your essential oil, right? Mm -hmm. What does your sense of, of beauty look like? That's contained inside of your essential oil, right? So these two aspects of the soul comprise what is called the sulfur or the psyche component. And so what I've tried to do is really, I try and eliminate the belief or the religious aspect from this and say, these are things that are more or less self-evident and unanimous to the human experience. And if we can get on the same page there, then it doesn't matter how a person practices alchemy or what religion they incorporate into it. The foundation of it is pure enough that we can use for discussion. So that's where we go is sulfur is all about the soul. The mercury is what we call the spirit. And again, this has nothing to do with metallic mercury, um, although it, uh, it is symbolized by metallic mercury because mercury or Hermes was the messenger of the gods and he could fly fluidly between heaven and earth and come back to heaven again. Well, what would end up happening is that uh, the metal mercury does the exact same thing. It can be a solid, vaporize, and condense back to a solid. And so, and semi-solid, it's more like a liquid, but it's like it is quick a quicksilver, right? Mercury is quicksilver? Quicksilver, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so it fits the same archetype, and that's the reason that that metal came to be identified as mercury, because it's like the message. It travels between it. both. Like, it could, be all, it could be all of those things. Huh, exactly. fascinating. So and the so alcohol. Of, the spirit of Mercurius is present in quicksilver, which is mercury. Well, and in the vegetable kingdom, it's present in alcohol too. And that's why we still call alcohol spirits huh. today is that that's one of the things that's actually come from even the Arabic term alcohol means that it's like spelled A-L hyphen K-H-O-U-L, uh, sometimes pronounced al-ghul or al-khul, which sounds like ghoul, mm. like G-H-O-U-L, like a ghost or mm -hmm. a spirit. And it's, or a geist. It's a, the very same lineage travels all the way from Arabic times to today in terms of the way that we conceptualize these things, even if, even if the modern person isn't aware of it. But this is also why people not being aware that alcohol is a spirit, that whatever they imbue that spirit with, they're going to receive it. So if you are drinking with depressed thought, you're increasing the amount Whoa. of that spirit. Now, what spirit actually is, if I were to replace the word spirit with another synonym for my tradition, spirit means discipline or regular action. So what amount of regular action are you doing? That is what your spirituality actually is. That's how you are developing your spirit. And people who don't have regular actions or discipline are very spiritually lax and don't have the ability to discipline themselves. And the reason that why that's important is because uh, left to its own devices, the psyche will just develop ADD. <sighs> it will be all over the place. Discipline takes the psyche and it structures it and it filters it through the vehicle of the body to actually perform the volition of the human individual. So we hear in lots of circles, you know, 
live your will or do what you want or you know follow the, your bliss alistair crowley phase which is uh do what thou will shall be the whole of the law love is the law love under will it's all really regardless of how you look at that or think about alistair crowley it's really uh, a phrase of how do we live more into ourselves and do the things that we want and feel fulfilled with the lives that we're living and in alchemical practice the sulfur and the mercury and the salt which is to say the soul the spirit and the body all which have one's to the be body again balanced. oh the the body is salt sorry salt. i didn't actually discuss that the body body is salt and we even talk about the salt of the earth you know there's a lot of it in utah people. Yeah, a lot of it in Utah, Salt Lake City. Yeah. So it's very, very practical. And the salts are things. So in the vegetable kingdom, uh, the mercury, I, I kind of alluded to this. Let's go back just a little bit. In the vegetable kingdom, the mercury is going to be the alcohol of any plant. So we take a plant, we stick it inside of water. The plant has yeast on itself. All plants have the perfect yeast to decompose them, just like your body has the perfect yeast to decompose you when you die. Mm. And if you put the, the body of any plant in an anaerobic uh, environment underwater, it will begin to eat itself away and to uh, all of its starches convert to sugars. Those sugars then get eaten by the microbe, by all those yeasts, and then it turns into a mild ferment. Well, through a process of distillations after fermentation, so for any of, of the Jungians out there, the process I'm referring to right now is called fermentatio. You ferment and you undergo this uh, lucid imagination process and then you have to distill that process and the, the distillation process or the distillatio process deals with uh, being able to rectify that spirit from maybe a two to five percent ferment up to a 95 percent alcohol a pure spirit like Everclear mm. that's what the vegetable spirit is going to be of of uh, you know the whole kingdom the mercury of the vegetable kingdom and then the salt what we do in the herbal kingdom is that um, the salt, when we extract an herb, we're left with just this herb and we burn it. That leaves us with ashes of the herb. Well, if we extract those ashes with water, we can leach out potassium carbonate, chemically what it's called. Uh, alchemically, we call it salt of carter or salt of salt. And we can crystallize it. And so what we get are these potassium carbonate crystals. And in my spagyric practice, what I do is I do this with all plants. I extract the essential oils or perform extracts of the plants to get it their sulfur. I ferment plants and usually cane spirits. I, I use vegetable uh, sugar cane for the majority of my stuff because I can get it organic and relatively cheap. But I also use honey spirits and a couple of indigenous spirits too where I ferment the plants themselves. But I use those as my actual spirits. And then uh, the ash of the plants gets extracted and crystallized. And when we combine all three parts of this together, what ends up happening is an iatrochemical reaction. And that iatrochemical reaction basically means that it's making a pharmaceutical extract of the plant by combining a potassium ion from the potassium carbonate to the sulfur molecules, uh, all of the interesting acids and stuff inside of the, the sulfur, the soul, the extract of the plant, they mix with that base ingredient of that potassium carbonate, and it creates a mild acid-base reaction inside of the tincture, creating a pharmaceutically active tincture. Whereas before, an herbal tincture, not pharmaceutically active, you have to take a lot of it, maybe three to five teaspoons or tablespoons even, my tincture, if three to five tablespoons was the dose of the herbal tincture, you may need 10 drops of one of my spagyric tinctures because it's bound to a potassium ion. 
So what does that mean spiritually or transpersonal? Yes. It means that when we take our soul, our spirit, and our body and perfect them, separate them out, put them back together, we are much more potent individuals because we've gotten rid of all of the dross that was in our way, all of the confusion, all of the anticipation, all of the excitement, all of the things that get in the way of the actual human experience, namely our traumas and the way that our traumas force us to make decisions. So alchemy for a, a common person, its main application, in my opinion, needs to be, we need to prioritize this as a, as a society, as a culture, to help eliminate all people of trauma because a healthy society is a better society. I mean, that's just common sense. We can become healthier by eliminating most of our trauma. So alchemy allows us to be able to dive into any of the traumas physical, spiritual, or psychological, and begin to utilize the very same processes we would use in the laboratory, but in a transpersonal level. So if you're interested, I'll go into those processes. Oh, please. Yeah, I'm dying to okay. know. Okay, so here we go. We'll start at the very top. The very first process that people really need to go through is a process of breaking. Well, I guess let's talk about step zero, okay, the preparation work to begin. You have to choose an aspect of yourself or an aspect of your existence that you are unhappy with, dissatisfied with, or want to change, or are ready to change or transform. If you're not ready to change or transform, it doesn't matter what you do to it, you're not going to work up the determination to actually see it through. So when you identify that there's an aspect of you that may be a problem or getting in the way of you expressing yourself or achieving your own goals, because again, we don't care so much about the rest of the world and what they say is wrong with us. We want to self-identify. Those are the things that we can actually work on. Now, if somebody else has told you something as a reflection, you can then self-identify with it, work with it. But until you can self-identify it, or unless you self-identify with it, you don't work with any of those, these things. You, you might think so you're stupid, or you might think you're shy or not good at talking to those people that you find ro romantic interest in. You might feel that you can't quit taking opiates. You might feel that you can't overweight, quit your job, you're anything. overweight, any one of those things could be one of the things to start with, step zero. Okay, cool, you're with me 100%. So step one, now that we have our material, is to burn away all of the excess justification that is getting in the way of us accessing the medicine or accessing the salt of the material. So in the herbal kingdom, what this looks like is that we would take a plant and we would burn it down. We would start to incinerate it by starting it on fire and then put it on a grill and grill those ashes by grinding and crushing them for many, many hours at a time to the point where the ashes are as pure white as possible. Sometimes they're still only gray, but as pure white as you can possibly get them. Now, transpersonally, what that means is that you're taking your reasoning your justifications for being why you are or why you are in the position that you are, uh, why you are the way that you are, any of these things, you need to break that justification, that belief system down. You have to realize first that there is a belief system tying you into that pattern for behaving that way. Otherwise, you probably would have changed it already. So identifying the belief system, is it that you're unworthy? Is it that you, you know, do this for this or, you know, you, whatever your reasoning is, you're going to find it. So you find it and all. Then, it could be, I went to talk to this person and they responded this way and then someone called me this name and then, you know, and then yep. I, I did this embarrassing thing and it played out in my dreams for a long time. Then I had this nightmare and this nightmare made me think that that was definitely true. And then, and then after the nightmare, something else confirmed that it was true. And I just take all of that and I put it in this alchemical vessel and I'm 
putting it all together in one place, maybe writing it down or meditating over it for however long I could think of, however we'd like, drawing pictures of this. We're taking it all and putting it into one place. Is this what you're suggesting? That's exactly what I'm suggesting, Zach, is that you put it right in there, and that's going to be called your crucible. You're going to stick it right inside of your crucible, and you're just going to burn it down and crush it down. And you'll find that some things that you started with are actually true, like, for instance, events, moments, memories, things like that. Those things are still true. They still happened, Mm -hmm. most likely. I mean, sometimes people do fabricate things, but for the most part, things actually did happen, even if it was only by state of your perception, okay? So I want people who are hyper-spiritual and say, oh, but I understand the reason these things happen, to drop out of that for a moment and actually tap into the trauma and realize that, yeah, it did happen for a reason, but unless you go through this actual process, you probably won't ever recognize or fully utilize the potential of that reason. So... Telling and it might be it just a part a of the reason that there actually might be even more reason, like another layer, yes. a whole nother level or of, of reason uh, and all encompassing. Like it, instead of like you have a reason, like a circle, like the reason now becomes a larger circle or an entirely different shape that now it encapsulates that circle. So it you're not stuck and restricted by the reason that you think you have. We get attached to this idea of this reason because this reason helped liberate us. And then we become stuck by the very thing we became liberated from and by. Sorry. We get stuck by the very thing we got liberated by. And the idea with this alchemical process, from what I could understand from a psychological and human perspective, is that from a psychological perspective, this could continue constantly grow. This this uh this are we could continue to put things in this uh the word always escapes me, this uh, circular crucible, crucible and, uh, and continuously expand using this crucible. Yes, that's absolutely right. As long as it's tied to the thing that you want to transform about yourself. Now, you may notice there's lots of emotions and there's probably lots of instances, like I was talking about memories tied to those emotions. All of this goes into the crucible. And you'll notice a lot of things burn away, but not everything burns away because you still have ash. So the things that don't burn away are going to probably be the memories of what actually happened, okay? But all of the belief systems that you have around those memories should now be burned away. By the time we get done with calcination, we're ready for the next phase. This may take days, may take minutes, may take months. It depends on what you're working on and who you are, really. And it's not a linear process. This is the idea is that as we do this, this is a prayer or a ceremony or a ritual of sorts that's been practiced since time immemorial. And it happens in your lab as well in this crucible. And essentially what ends up happening is you're left with the ash. Somehow, mysteriously, something else comes in. Call it Hermes, call it God, call it the universe, call it divine beings, call it miracle, call it, you know, some type of alchemical combustion, whatever you want to call it. But just by doing this ritual, this is what magic is, real magic, actually magic. And this is what we see. We see people healing from psychological ailments all the time. And it doesn't generally happen from a linear process. Something something happens and it just magically occurs in the most strange way imaginable. 
And, uh, and what we're left with, from what I understand, is that Ash at the end of it, and a lot of cultures would use Ash, like Ash Wednesday, or like yep. they would call them Ash Eaters, or, or Bark, or I forget what it is, Coal Eaters. And the idea is that the Ash is the essence of the wound that you have, that once you get all of the other shit out of the way, now this becomes a powerful gift in a way. Your gift actually comes from the ashes, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Isn't you that a think, phoenix? Like, Doesn't a phoenix, uh, uh, your namesake here, uh, rise yeah. from the ashes itself? Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. A number of different catalytic events ultimately led to that that helped me self-identify with that name. So with that being said, um, that very first process of calcination is absolutely critical until you get rid of the belief system. Remember that in this case, the belief is going to be your enemy. Some beliefs can be supportive. Most beliefs actually inhibit us. If we go through this process, you find out how inhibiting they are. So you can choose to enslave yourself, but it's like Bob Marley says, we have to liberate ourselves from our own mental slavery. So with that being said, we find all those painful memories. That's what's left. We move to the next phase and we have to extract our ash. So in the laboratory, what we do is we take all that ash and we put it into a glass, like a, a beaker, and we pour distilled water over it, and we bring it to a boil, and we let it boil for you know, 15, 20 minutes or whatever, and try and extract as much of the potassium carbonate out of there as you possibly can. And what's interesting is that in a time before Kool-Aid, dissolution really only happened through these types of alchemical processes, and it wasn't even very clearly seen because you can't see the potassium dissolve inside of the water per se, because there's all this ash inside of the water. But what we can do is we can let the, the ash uh, settle out and precipitate and then carefully decant off at the top. Or in these days, what I use is a vacuum filtration system where I can just pass it through a vacuum filter at two microns and keep all the ash behind in my filter while all the water comes through. And then you can see that the color of the water is clear. You can tell that the viscosity of the water is different. You can tell, you know, the pH is definitely way different. So many different uh, uh, actual characteristics to that water happen, but you couldn't tell that really in more ancient times. And this was a mystery to everybody, to the Egyptians, to everybody. When we talk about the mystery schools, this is one of the mysteries of nature, that minerals and metals can actually dissolve inside of water in this kind of really interesting way. So that's the, the process in the laboratory. It's really uh, simple and straightforward, is that all we're doing is we're taking the ash and we're dissolving it inside of really hot water and then cooling it, letting the ash precipitate. Simple. In the transpersonal laboratory, it's a little bit more complicated because what we're doing is we're taking all of those memories and now we're extracting the repressed emotion out of those memories. So you have to realize that the brain works in a series of neural pathways. And anytime that a neuron tries to go down a neural pathway, if it hits a neural pathway that is identified with a trauma, now it's going to hit what we call the trauma loop highway. And it just goes around the same emotions and the same feelings and the same thoughts and the same memories. And it hashes in that pattern over and over and over and over again. Now, you may have gotten rid of all of the belief systems around those things in the last phase and consciously told yourself, hey, I'm not going to buy that story. It's not actually true. I'm better than that. I can do anything that I want. I'm going to break this cycle. Until you get rid of the repressed emotions around that, 
you're going to, just by absolute nature of neurochemistry, end up traversing the same trauma highway. Oh, it's miserable. I know this exact thing. I am doing it this time. And you see people declaring it on Facebook. No more, <laughs> never again. I'm, and then like, and then not only do you fall back into it, now you've got the shame and the guilt and the embarrassment of the fact that you yes. announced that you're, and then you feel like you got Tony Robbins telling you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just snap your <laughs> fingers and make your move. And somehow it yep. just goes away. And I did, you know, I found I could, that's that Herculean, Her, Hercules, that shit he does, however yes. the hell you say Herculean. it. Herculean. Herculean. I, for some reason, I struggle saying that. And uh, that's that effort. And Hercules is one of the gods or son of a god, you know, part god. Yeah. <laughs> that works for a while, but eventually you have, you're carrying so much of these traumas and wounds, you can't go on anymore and you need Hermes' help. <laughs> so, uh, Phoenix, tell us more. Yeah, Cool. So yeah, you. I mean, once you release that repressed emotion, now you have a lot more of your astral body to work with, a lot more of what we would call your psychic body to work with. Again, psychic, just referring back to the soul. It's your soul power. So some of the soul powers are obviously very physical and very tied in with our brains, and some of them seem to be a little bit more sixth-sensing, okay? And it doesn't matter where you sit on the spectrum, whatever... Uh, interests you within that spectrum is the area of soul that you embody. Not all plants have the same type of extract, okay? They don't have, not all plants even have an essential oil. Not all plants even yield a thick sulfur. All of them are totally, totally different, just like us as people. So, so we're just, we have a unique soul, and it, we don't need to be like somebody else. We no. need to learn what it is that our true soul needs and wants and is trying to communicate with the rest of the aspects of ourselves. Exactly. That... And on another level, on a sociological level, to learn to live in harmony with other types of individuals based on the interests that we have because they are congruent and they work for the benefit of a particular ecology. And the same thing is true for us. We need to start thinking about our societies and the way we form our societies to be more like-minded instead of so hodgepodge together uh, with groups of people that are at very, very diverse odds uh, it's not that diversity is the problem. It's that people are at diverse odds. That there's we don't even have the same odd. We can't be unified in what our odds are and what our evens are. So, at any rate, um, yeah, let's talk about the the next phase then. So after you have sorted through all of the emotions, gone through it, and released it. And when I say released it, I mean you either broke up into laugh, laughter, anger, uh, crying is usually the best way. And in fact. You know, the alchemists used to say and have a, a tradition that when we cry, it's the reason tears are salty is actually because the waters of our astral body are dissolving away the mineral composition, the crystalline compositions of those painful memories and of those traumas, and it's carrying them in our tears. So I thought it was really beautiful when the science came out where they take different types of tears and crystallize them and show what their crystalline rates look like, because it, in some ways it definitely seems to validate that when you wow. take emotional tears. It's definitely getting out very crystalline uh, extractions from the body. And, they're, you know, all of our different types of tears are totally different. When you have emotional release tears, they are chemically totally different and also geometrically and crystalline uh, formation totally different and distinguishable from other tears that we would have. So it's almost there, like these... It's almost like the tears are like geometric pattern crystalline inside of yes. the waters mixed with salts that are leaving our eyes the same way that are similar, akin to uh, the way that you would delete something from your computer and it 
comes off of the hard drive. It's now off. There may be some remnants yeah. that it had been there at some point, and maybe that's the ash that's left over, which is how, like with computers, it's kind of like a microcosmic replication of a brain, right? Is, is yeah. that essentially you could, if you pay a bunch of money and your hard drive failed, somehow they could go in there and they, fi- they rebuild it from the ash. They rebuild the computer, as far as I understand it, from just the very finite, like almost like the, the, S, the spirit. Like, see, I'm, I'm, we're so not used to speaking in these terms from the ash. I should just stop there because that's the, mm-hmm. as, as good as I can get with describing that. Sure. All right. Cool. I think it's just so beautiful to imagine that as the tears are coming out, that you know that th- that's leaving you, and it, yeah, I think it's, it's so important. Actually, exiting the biological organism. It's saying we're not a part of this mental construct anymore. Leaking out your noggin. So then the next uh, phase is that you know we've obviously dissolved our ashes and we have this nice stuff, but we have to separate it out. So this next next phase is called separation. And um, there's a lot of different ways of separating things in the laboratory. There's fil- uh, filtration, aeration, lots of different things, depending on what material you're working on. But in this linear process that we're talking about, let's talk about filtration. Because what we're ne- going to do now is we're going to take this ashy, dissolved liquid that we have, and we need to separate out the ashes or the dross from that which is at a higher vibration. That's constantly what alchemy is doing. It's called solve et coagula, to dissolve and to recombine, to dissolve and recombine. We're constantly taking something away, purifying it, and adding it back to something. So in this case, what we're doing is we're still working on the separation phase, and we're trying to separate out the ash from that water that contains all of our minerals. And so we pour it through a filter, all of the ash stays behind in the filter, and all of our water, which is called filtrate, comes through. Now, what this phase symbolizes in the transpersonal process is that if you really want to achieve your goals, you have to separate from all of the things that were holding you back before. You have to separate from the conditions, from the people, from the environments, physiologically, mentally, etc., that led to those experiences continuing to happen inside of your life. What types of people were you hanging out with? How were they contributing to the belief systems that you had about yourself or the lack of where you were going in life, for instance? Um, What about the type of job that you're working in? How is that contributing to where you really wanna be in life or what it is that you wanna be doing? So on and so forth. And you put all of this into the context, of course, of what your starting material is. And so at this point, people should really begin diagramming out uh, not just what they don't want because saying what you don't want is almost saying like, I'm going to relapse. Okay. Saying what you want to move towards and what you're moving towards, putting it into present terms, not going to, but what I am moving towards is going to put you into a whole different flow. And that's what the separation process or this filtration process is really about is diagramming out what it is that you do want based on, if you lack imagination, the opposite of what you don't want. And it's very easy. Mm -hmm. And so, for instance, um, in the case of obesity, somebody says, listen, I'm obese, that's a problem. I am obese because I have multiple different psychological traumas and food has been my comfort source. They get to the end of that belief system, realize, okay, I'm not taking responsibility for the health of my body. And that's what they go in to dissolve. They come in with lots of different memories of all the times that they use food to treat a psychological comfort because 
they are repressing the fact that they don't even like their job and don't like the friends that they have, but they don't know how to deal with it and just continually eating to repress all that, all that bullshit. So they, they get rid of all that repressed emotion, cry about it, get angry about it, get frustrated at themselves, whatever the case is, move to this next phase of separation. You've got to get rid of the old friends. You've got to get rid of the old foods. You've got to get rid of the old ways of thinking. And now you're probably going to think, what will my dietary, what will my fitness, what will my XXX, whatever routine it is that you're creating, what is that going to look like in order for me to move to the next phase? Okay. So this is where we're at in the psychological phase with separation is that you create a plan and you stick to it. You with me? Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. Okay. But this plan is obviously you don't know exactly what to do. So this plan is a living process as well. It's a living process. You're just saying, you know what? I'm uncomfortable with myself like this. If I do this, I feel like I would be less uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And so this next phase then is what I call crystallization. And uh, Dennis William Houck calls this conjunction um, in his books. But uh, in the context of spagyrics, the way that I teach crystallization actually is more the way that it works is that we take that filtrate from our last process. So the ashes are left behind. We can actually take those ashes and we can calcine them and dissolve them and, and uh, filter them and keep doing that over and over and over and over and over again, actually in the laboratory. And it's usually about two to three rotations for most plants before it stops yielding any more salts, but you can do it a few times and there's still material there. So even when you think you're done, if you want to go back through it, just to make sure, you know, make it an annual process, you know, whatever. Anyway, so here we are, we have uh, our filtrate. Now our filtrate is a liquid and what we're trying to get is a crystalline solid. So the way that that happens actually is really simple. It's just through evaporation. We just take that, that solution and we lessen the volume by evaporating out the fluid, in this case water. And that's going to take all the minerals that were in that water and it's gonna condense them to a point where they no longer have water to be dissolved into and they start turning physical again or crystallizing. And during this crystallization phase, uh, this is really where we arrive at our, what in alchemy we call our salt of salt or the truest part of uh, the body that is incorruptible. This is the part of the body that can raise again. Uh, in biblical terms, you know, when Jesus rises from the dead, this is the corporeal body that he has given. So, so it's a salt that, body that he rises out from. Yes, exactly. A new body that you could feel these wounds, but the wounds are still there and they don't hurt. It's an incorruptible body. Hmm. So with that being said, um, this, uh, this process is really just all about harnessing the salt of the material and actually living and embodying the change of the process that you've gone through at this, you know, thus far in the, in the process, there's a few more phases, but this far at the fourth phase, you should have achieved a very drastic different goal than the person that you were. Even people will somewhat say, wow, you're, you're different. Something about you seems different. If you were doing the, uh, the weight loss example that I was talking about, this would be a phase where somebody has gone to the gym, changed their diet, done all these things for so long, that they are actually physiologically possibly unrecognizable from the person that they once were. Their mindset, their attitude, their belief systems, their habits, all those things are going to be slightly changed. But do you know what people are still going to be left with, Zach, which we're almost always left with as humans, this is what drives our evolution, 
is a sense of dissatisfaction. <laughs> so if you were overweight and now you're even a personal trainer, you're really fit, you're really strong, you do all those things. A lot of people still say, you know what? I'm still not living to the ultimate me that I can. I made these changes. I feel better. I feel much better, but I'm not fulfilled as a person. And that's because there's a few more phases that still need to happen. We've only begun to take care of the things that actually purify our salt. That is to say our physiological conditions to allow our physical vessel to even be pure enough to hold the spirit and the soul aspects and those extractions that need to come henceforth. Fascinating. I want to chime in with my experience. I did a lot of work in the whole self-improvement world and I was able to, through again, the Herculean, Hercules, Herculean, does, Herculean <laughs> uh, effort, I, I was able like a, like the warrior, you know, that uh, if there was a Jungian archetype, I mean, I embodied that and just kind of plowed forward and, if I got too injured, I you know I would take something and continue to plow forward. It was like that that Winston Churchill quote: "If you find yourself in hell, keep going." You know. Yes. But yes. I, the problem is, is I just kept going and never questioned. Like, wait a second, like why am I in hell? Where am I even going? <laughs> I was like, I just go into deeper levels of Dante's Inferno here. <laughs> So I want to point out there are subtleties here that if you're not familiar with what you were Phoenix was talking about, you might think like, okay, I've just got to try harder. I've got to make a, a list that I'm going to go to the gym, and if I don't go to the gym, I'm going to punish myself, self, you know, self, uh, you know, self punishment or whatever. Yeah. yeah, but that's not the goal here. This is this is the difference between Hercules, the god of Hercules, which is an archetype that is a living archetype that still lives in our language. It lives in all of our psyche. It lives in our belief systems. Uh, th that this whole like go get it type of thing. This is very alive. This is Hercules is like one of the gods of the West, um, among other ones. Uh, we've thrown Pan into hell, and he's now Lucifer. So the male connection to uh, uh, to to nature has completely been disowned. And if you could imagine, because of that, we're destroying the men are destroying the planet. I mean, some women too, but men are you know running the shit for the most part, the destroying machine. Uh, but what I want to talk about is the archetype, uh, archetype god of Hermes uh, and Mercurius, which is a very different god to embody in this process. And essentially, by by looking at by by this meditation, this ritual, this ceremony, this prayer that uh, Phoenix just evoked or invoked in himself and and through this podcast is essentially this is a different embodiment. If you have only got if if you have gotten to a certain part of your life using that Hercules effort, I'm just going to say Hercules effort, uh, and and for whatever reason that's not that has gotten you to the point where I was at, where you're exhausted, beaten down, you're like quote unquote gotten achieved what you're supposed to, or maybe you're not even there yet, but you're like pretty close and you could kind of see the finish line and like who's still there and you're like this is definitely not it it's better than being in the projects but uh, this isn't it either uh this is an invitation uh hermes allows for so much more it's that living relationship uh with this alchemical process that's constantly evolving it, it gives you so much more room to add and grow and change and mold and it may be like i'm you know, I'm, you know, I'm working out more and I'm going out in nature. Or I'm like tr trying natural movement or there's this other modality called Feldenkrais. Whereas typically you're like, you just change one belief for another. It's like, I'm no longer doing weightlifting. I'm now doing yoga. Nope. I'm now I'm losing too much muscle. Now I'm doing 
oh, CrossFit, because that's kind of both a little bit, you know? And then, uh, no, now I'm doing triathlons, you know? And it's just like, we only have this idea of more, 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 instead of like, what experience in life? Why am I even trying to fucking run three triathlons? Like, what am I trying to prove to myself with this? And a lot of times it's a cover up, uh, 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 a cover up for feeling shame or not feeling like you achieved something younger when you were younger. And, you know, if I could just run this thing, I'll feel good about myself. But we get there and you're right. And we go, well, shit, you know, that was cool, but this wasn't what I was looking for. And the idea is to become playful in the dance of the alchemical process of creation, the very creation of your own soul, you know, finding your soul and like constantly crystallizing and becoming more beautiful uh, crystalline forms of yourself as a reflection of your environment that's also constantly changing. So I think it's just such so beautiful what you touched on. That's really cool, Zach. And that actually... um gets me to bring up the fact that, you know, now that I've described these processes like yourself, most of the listeners will realize that they have done this either, uh, shall we say unconsciously or subconsciously anyway, when a crisis happens, crisis is the calcination process of the unconscious world. Okay. It's just the way that things transform you. They always start with crisis and then an adaptation happens in a sequential order to be able to help that that organism adapt. If it doesn't adapt, then it perishes and it turns to this new 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 form. Right? If something burns, it turns to a mineral, so on and so forth. So I want to point out what the etym- etymology, because uh, it was so fascinating. Our words carry stories. A lot of people think that oh, English is this crappy language, you know, or whatever. But within in- an English word is an entire story that has families of other words that come from the gods. You know, I mean. Crisis, early uh, 15th century from Latinized form of Greek, crisis, turning point in a disease. It's a turning point in a disease used such by Hippocrates and Galen. Literally, judgment result of a trial selection uh, means to separate, decide, or judge. Uh, I mean, it just goes on and on. Middle Irish border or boundary. This is a crisis. Yeah. Yeah. But our meanings are our mean our meanings of words, like how we understand that word, is anemic. Here's a word and it goes, Oh, it means this. No, but that word has a whole story and a history that is embedded in in the fabric of of our psyche and our being itself, and it's embedded in the plant and it's embedded in each other and it's the web that connects us. I just want to chime in with this how yeah. powerful crisis means. It's not something necessarily bad or good. It's something so much more that encompasses <laughs> that ascends that. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, it's just, yeah, for me, it's a universal process. It's a principle that we can't get rid of. And we have one of two choices. We have the choice to fear it, or we have the choice to embrace it and to understand it. And when you understand and embrace it, the process becomes a beautiful process of self-revelation, of self-growth. And if you follow it through to its end of transformation, people probably have at multiple times in their life done this process, process one through four, ad infinitum, meaning that they just keep repeating that process and they never go to the next phases, which is important for preparing the soul and the spirit to actually get where you want. Because right now you've only got one third, even though there's a lot of work that goes into the body portion of the preparation of the work, which is true in the laboratory as well. It's only one third of the portion that you actually need. You actually need to have the sulfur, you need to have the mercury, and 
the salt. And now at the very end of these four processes, we really are only just arriving at the salt, but it's very, very important to do this process in relationship to what it is that you want to transform consciously, even if you've been through this process before. So I just want to make that statement before we move on. Yeah, I see so many people, re myself included, running into that wall. I, I do it less now that I've, uh, I feel like the word that I wanted to use that I've heard recently that's, that's powerful is that my belief system and my tactics were anemic. I didn't think they were, like I'd read a bunch of books, but I'd read a bunch of books that kind of said the same thing. They kind of followed the same vein. I didn't want to, I would never include like this book on alchemy. Like I didn't even, what the hell does alchemy have to do with my problem that I, you know, feel anxious in the kitchen all the time, like I'm about to have a panic attack. What the hell does that have to do with it? You know, <laughs> I, I'd almost feel like, and you see people when they get in their beliefs, they'll, they'll defend them. Like they, they yes. you know, they're terrified. Like just the very way that I eat or like I want to go to this grocery store. I want to go to a farmer's market instead of Costco. They like get pissed. Like, what do you mean? The spinach at Costco is not the same as spinach. At the-? It's like, good yes. Lord. What, you know, what, what is, what are you so worked up about? And there's so many layers to this whole thing. And I think what this whole, my whole podcast with Zeitgeist with Zeitgeist is, is an attempt at an invitation to introduce very, like a ton of, how do we expand our sense of self? How do we expand our experience of being in this world? You know, I look and I'm envious of a lot of these primitive cultures. I've looked into shamanism because my family's from Siberia and I've, I've researched these shamanic cultures that are now like, I mean, there's still some of it going on. We brought Zarina down here. She grew up in Yakutia and uh, and you know, there's some of the shamanic culture and a lot of this dismemberment and then remember, like you, in order to remember, right. Right. Like even looking back on this word, we have to dismember the word, right? Like crisis, we dismembered it. Like, where did it come from? Where is cry? Where is cyst? Like, what are the roots and stems? Where did it come from? And this is the idea of like, we have this block. Oh shit, we're blocked. And if we stay blocked long enough, like my back, bam, you have a crisis. And here's that turning point, right? Now I could form a boundary around it and identify with the crisis, but now I become stuck again, right? So what can I do to introduce more, more ideas, more people? How do I change my environment? How do I really play with life? You know, and, and we become, I mean, I could speak for myself, become very afraid to try new things, you know, because... You know, we worry that there's going to be a ton of consequence. And I could go deeply into the fact of where our economic system is. And I feel like that's one of the main problems is our economic system is squeezing us so tight that if we get off the treadmill to experiment with these things, we fear that like, I don't know, we might be homeless on the street. Watch the homeless population growing or, or something of that nature. So I think what we really crave is a community in order to, that, that could hold us while each of us begin to heal and then help each other grow like come together and i feel like that's what we're lacking is we're trying to heal which is great we can heal on our own but we need to be carried in some way so while we're healing if we look back in you know there's someone still there because this healing process could be somewhat intense for some people i could say for myself it was very very intense i had a walker and everything and i almost lost it all yeah in fact I think that, I mean, not to not to devalue anybody who's had an easy experience in their transformation process, but there is definitely something to say about hardship and suffering. And the more that you put into something, the more you get out of something. And if you put, every, if everything was on the line, not just you put it on the line, because sometimes things happen to us that, you know, like your back blows out that maybe you weren't conscious of. But when things are on the line in such a way that you have a lot at stake, the 
gains and the rewards that you get from this type of transformation are that much more meaningful and that much more powerful because it's actually altered the entire perception of the state of life that a person was in and creates a state of life or a state of awareness for that person that actually perpetuates what they are wanting, what they are desiring, what they feel that they're moving towards individually. And a lot of times I've noticed that what I feel most passionate about is the shit that was really blocking me. You know, like the economic system, you know, I, I feel so passionate about making a change there. You know, like slaughterhouses and the cruelty that is done to animals. I'm like, dude, I've, that has got to stop. The punishment of the sensitivity of boys, you know, circumcision. You know, we talk about, uh, uh, gosh, Persisa, what, what is his name? The eunuch? You know, I, I'm, oh, peristalsis, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I was, you know, was circumcised at birth, like most people in the U S and I'm pissed about that experience. I mean, I can't imagine, you know, I mean, here we are as, you know, taking away the sovereignty of other beings, not even for any real reason. It's just like habitual, you know, it's, uh, uh, whereas I, I loved this alchemical process that I was, that I was hearing how there's a prayer happening while this alchemy is happening, it's like, you know, you know, sorry, you know, Wormwood, we're melting you down because we're going to make you, move, you know, join yep. you with this, you know, and, and then we're, you're going to become part of me. And it was this deep prayer element of, uh, you know, it wasn't isolated off in the corner, like manufactured in a laboratory somewhere by, you know, people working for below, you know, terrible wages, you know, <laughs> which is kind of what we've turned in. We've turned into a machine uh, as opposed to a creative process, basically just converting more and more into this mechanistic worldview. Even our psychology is blocked. And, and and somebody could listen to this podcast even and only catch maybe little glimpses at that other world because our minds, those grooves are so embedded. And the idea here is to like tug and pull using mm -hmm. our language and telling stories and bringing in these ancient, ancient, you know, ancient pieces that could spark because in your body in your brain in the fabric of your being this is alive in you somewhere and it's somehow how do i lean and surrender into more of this you know how can i be with that discomfort of letting some new information enter my mindset my family is fundamental christians like uh they believe the bible is literally true that like you know if a kid disobeys you should take him out in the street and stone him and uh they believe this like factual, this is how you should be. But it's not even coherent because they don't act as though they're abiding by all these rules. So it's it's like almost like it's, it's only really there to judge people that don't believe that. And it also gives you a lot of certainty because as long as I just believe this one book, somehow I could like have the rules and I'm not going to get in trouble. And what I feel like is it's a lot of people that have experienced a lot of trauma that want some rule book. I find that in myself. It's like, why the fuck are taxes so complicated? Like, I, I, I studied tax law. Like, and I'm like, I don't understand it. And then finally, I start looking, I dig deeper. And I start going into that process, you know? And I'm like, wow, there's 7,000 pages of tax code. And then there's another 7,000 pages of treasury code. And there's dozens wow. of way to interpret every single one and their relationship with one another. Like what I do with the actual economic system with student loans, taxes, debt, and all of that is how do I use all of these symbols and rules, 
by which to navigate and keep people from having these numbers taken out of their account. Because we believe that these numbers, these numbers are artificial. People take this artificial stuff as more real than the alchemical process that you're doing that's actually happening in the moment. And they're like, what you're doing, that's not real. It's like, well, shit, I'm looking at it. What you're doing every day for these numbers on a computer is less real. Yet we participate in making the magic story of money and that it's limited and that, you know, certain people should have shit piles of it. 65 people should have more than the other 50% of the people combined. And in my opinion, that is a definite sign of sickness. If my little tip of my pinky weighed, it was sucking up 50% of my life resources, like my body would be sick. And I think we need to look at society and go, something's fucking wrong here, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and here's the cool part is that if, you know, and this has always been my philosophy and why, you know, I, I do put my opinions out there a lot and I, I try and change uh, as many opinions as possible, but I've always maintained the concept that people will naturally come to the same opinions that I have come to that are, because I don't even feel that all of my opinions are more like realizations. And when you watch nature and you observe nature, nature already has laws and it already has rules that make everything work. And when you get away from what you want to project upon nature and you let it impress itself upon you, what you begin to see are organic processes of complete and utter sustainability. And we have the ability as human beings to really, you know, walk in nature's footsteps, uh, to put it in the words of alchemist Michael Meyer, and to really begin to uh, like I said earlier in the show, to really steward uh, not only our own sociology, but the ecology and everything else along with it. But it takes understanding these principles and applying the principles to ourselves first. That's the first level because the world is holographic and fractal. And so it doesn't matter whether you start on the macrocosmic level or whether you start on the microcosmic level, you are affecting the change. And if one person does this, Here's the truth. If you and your group of friends end up walking through a transpersonal transformation, you're going to be so vastly different that I, uh, you will, or sorry, A, you will either get a new group of friends that help embody and, and circulate you, or your old group of friends will be so inspired by the person that you become and what you're doing that they're going to grow and join and meet you and ask you what you did, in which case you can just be a light in the darkness for those who want to, you know, come, come through that hallway into this nice, brilliant room of warmth that you're in. And the best and, way to do that is not by judging them and saying, here I am over here, I have all these things. It becomes yeah. self-evident to other yeah. people. They will come and approach you. If you ever try and do any of this for the purpose of showing off to other people, you're already not, uh, you haven't gone through the justification process of, of alchemy, uh, the calcination process enough. You have not processed that because your ego will not make it through the process of calcination. In fact, calcination causes you to leave your ego, which is your belief system for why things are the way that they are and your justifications and all this other stuff. You have to check that at the door. And when you check that at the door, then it gives you the opportunity to actually see in the way and, and to remove the filters to actually see and to actually perceive in a way that is beyond what your ego would normally perceive. And that I think but is But you're one checking of it at by at the door by the very nature of participating in this in this ceremony that we're talking about or in this alchemical ritual yeah. by the very act of doing it. It's not like something you have to do, bad ego, get over there. It's just like the very yeah. act of doing it is 
essentially leaving it at the door. Like it might be kicking and screaming. This is it might say things. I could tell you what it's probably what mine would say or yeah. what what I would go. <laughs> yeah. If this was working, everybody would be doing alchemy. Uh, if uh, you know, if I could have done it, I would have done it already. Uh, you know, magic is proven to not be real. We all are here from a big bang that came out of nothing. You know, it's like the big bang is just this one miracle that happened, and then ever since then, there's no more miracles. Just, just one, and then we like try to figure out. There's some weird stuff that happens. We haven't quite figured out black holes and quantum physics and. You know, uh, you know, things traveling different points in time and non-locality, but now nah, we're going to get that all figured out, you know, and, uh, you know, we pretty much got it. You know, that's kind of been the scientific story since time immemorial, where if you look at the primitives, maybe they had it figured out with animism even more than we do today. Yeah, yeah I think that I think that anim- animism actually holds a, I would consider myself a bioregional animist. Um, what in the heck does that mean? A uh, bioregional animist means that I was born on a very particular area of land, in this case, in Ogden, Utah. And because I was born here, I feel a very strong desire and a karma, so to speak, a connection to, for my benefit and the benefit of this land, to increase the capacity of the consciousness, to help the ecology, to restore lots of things. Uh, that's part of my bioregion. The animism part means that I see and treat my bioregion as a human being or think of it as an entity that I can relate with. So its hairs look like trees and the dead skin cells and other things may look like some of the plants and its soil might look like its skin and so on and so forth. And I really put a deep amount of perception into thinking as best as I can how this living organism that I have as my bioregion acts and moves and breathes as a singular organism and how the health of each individual part, this forest, this area of the city, this park, this whatever, comprise the totality of the consciousness of that area. And as, uh, as an alchemist, it's very, very potent for me to do that because when I go and I harvest herbs, the herbs themselves are part of the genius loci. The genius loci is the genius or the entity, the intelligence of the entity of that area, of that location. That's what genius loci means. And the viridis geni would be the the genius or the intelligence of that plant spirit that lives on the genius loci. So all of the plants from this area speak in a very particular tongue. And they may be the same exact species as what live in another area of the United States or even another region of the state, but they speak in a different way and they have different medicinal virtues. And so for me, as they have different medicinal virtues, say that again, you said they have different medicinal virtues. You're talking about, absolutely. uh, So like I can harvest sage right here, like sage in Ogden would have different virtues than sage, say in California. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, so much of that is due because of the epigenetic expression of just living beings is that our genes actually change according to the locations that we're at, the amount of rainfall that we have, the things that we're surrounded by, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so even though the seed batch may have been the same and started even in essentially the same soil, but then transplanted, once they started you know, once they were transplanted and studied, we would begin to see that there were differences, major differences that began to happen in the genetics and the genetic expression of those plants that make them very distinguishable. And um, they have 
entirely unique identities. So even though some of their medicinal vibrations might remain the same, like you could probably count on sage, regardless of where you get, get it from, and helping with coughs, but one of them might also help much more with the physical structure of the body and helping to heal bones and teeth and other things. Whereas another one that may not be present in the soil because the soil is too acidic, doesn't have the alkaline structure that's necessary for the sage to take on those properties. So there's a lot that goes on with this. And to me, when I take a look at the soil composure, it's really like no different than what is happening in the exocrine system in the secretions of the skin in order to give way to good healthy hair or to give way to you know non-dry skin or to heal psoriasis or whatever. It's the exact same science, the exact same way of looking at things, and it's holographic and telescopic because I can look at anything like this under this alchemical angle and it provides me with data that I can relate to and refer to and methodologies that I can use to address whatever problems are observed. So um, yeah, I've, been, any... I've been blown away by this talk. It's gone better than I had even anticipated and completely in different directions. Your, uh, your knowledge of this like whole topic and how it relates with, I don't know, everything uh, is is powerful. I remember coming to your house and coming down to your laboratory. And generally, when I go to someone's bookshelf, you know, I, I've I've read a lot of books in my day, and uh, so I I see okay, I've read this and I've read this, and I'm looking at your bookshelf, and there wasn't a single book that I had read. And I'm like, well, I don't know if you remember when I said that. I'm like, I don't think I've ever come to anybody's bookshelf and not seen a single book that I've ever read. And, uh, and I think maybe that's why I find this conversation. This is so powerful for my alchemical process of transformation of like being a living being, having new information coming in and, you know, digest, like going, I don't I see again, I'm looking for these, I'm, I'm lacking the Looking language, the terms, I'm lacking yeah. the grammar. I mean, and, and to the degree that we're lacking the grammar oftentimes is it, it limits our ability to connect with one another and it, it, it limits, it eliminates our ability to experience this beautiful life, right? So that this is what a spell is. Like it's the, it's the words that you use. And there's somebody, I don't know if you're familiar with David Abrams work. He, oh, yeah. he wrote the book, the, the Spell of the Sensuous and Becoming Animal. And the way that he speaks could take you into uh, essentially an altered state of consciousness because he's speaking in this way that you don't normally speak in. I mean, even the way that he, his own, the way he sounds, the words that he uses, the way that he puts them together, the pauses between, I mean, it's like, I mean, it's, it's taking you somewhere. And, and the term that I've used to describe this and I've heard used before is ecstatic. It drops you into the ecstatic and the ecstatic is as the noun. The ecstatic is a place uh, where you're essentially bathed in the divine. And, uh, and it seems like this, partic- I, I want to maybe end the podcast with this. Uh, which is kind of what the original topic, or maybe circling back to uh, participation mystica, which is this ex- the actual felt to the best degree that you can. If you is what is the felt experience working with practical alchemy? Like, sh- like, does it make sense for people, especially people that are practicing the Jungian psychological tradition, to actually get in front of these al- alchemical vessels working with? these extraction processes, watching this change happen, and what is that participation mystica, what, 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 is, what happens there for you? Yeah, that's really cool. Um, okay, now one really fast thing just for the listeners, I want to finish off just the alchemical process. So the, in order for the spiritual 
aspect of us to be pure, extracted and purified in these seven processes of alchemy, we have to perform what's called fermentation and distillation. What that is, I, I'll, I'll skip the lab descriptions of these, just go into transpersonal. Transpersonal is where you have to get into a state of where you're really going to be dreaming. This could also be called extraction, but Dennis William Hawk calls it fermentation. And it's essentially where you begin to go into a state of somewhat hibernation or the dark night of the soul, where you're so, so kind of depressed or, or uh, discouraged about your current situation that it gets you to really enter into this involutionary phase where you're, you, you've maybe stopped talking to people, you're just kind of being a hermit or recluse or whatever, and trying to find what passion it is you really have. And when you stick with this for long enough, what ends up coming out of it is a ferment or something with alcohol. And, you know, as you know, you can drink about as much water as you want. It doesn't change your consciousness that much. You drink a little bit of wine, it's going to change your consciousness. So this new ferment obviously is more potent. It has some spirit into it and it creates a buoyancy for us. And so the goal of this fermentation and this extraction phase is to really get the uh, I call this principle extraction. I say that this is the principle where we extract our sulfur. And so this is where you're drawing out all of your alchemical inspiration. Uh, I call it alchemical inspiration, but it's just like your life inspiration. What are the things that really jive with you? What do you really want to do and be doing? Now, remember when you dream like this, your dreams are about 80 plus percent false. Uh, how do we know that? Well, a ferment doesn't ferment more than about 18 percent uh, alcohol. It's usually between like three to 18% alcohol, which means that, you know, 82% of it is completely false in terms of it's an astral dream. It's just stuff, but, or it's maybe the palette to like, you know, you have a, you have a painting, you have a background, you need a background. Yes. It's like, it, yeah, it's, it's your there. canvas, it's your yeah. whatever. But essentially when we extract that through the next process of distillation, distillation is taking our dreams and actually refining the dreams and applying discipline to achieving those dreams. So the first few distillations just refine the dream and they get rid of all of the water or those, the astral stuff. And what we really want in our dreams is not the imagery or doing even what we visualize ourselves doing. What we want is the end feeling of how it makes us feel to visualize that. And so if you can end up through the process of distillation, actually extracting out the feeling and inserting behaviors in your day-to-day -day that help you feel like that, then you begin to develop the spirit that your psyche needs, that your body will be able to be the vehicle for, to be the happy, fulfilled, totally awesome person that you are. But it involves you taking the steps towards actually embodying those feelings, and you can't shortcut it. Just like in the laboratory, I can't shortcut any of these things. So. At this point now, we have our salt from the first four steps from the process of extraction or what Dennis William Howe calls fermentation. We have our sulfur. And then finally, with this last process of distillation, we have our mercury now purified or our spirit and our discipline now purified. And the very last step, the seventh step, is to put them all together, the sulfur, the mercury, and the salt, so that you are living a completely integrated life where your physical actions, your job, your friends, your environment, all those things match your interests and the disciplines that you have where you're feeling met in your society and in your psychological world and where you have become completely differentiated from the individual you once were. Uh, not sufficient to yourself, 
uh, all of these other aspects, all of those things are now kind of out of the way. So um, yeah, that's, I just wanted to finish that up really fast for the listeners. And um, I had remembered uh, to remember your question that you said you wanted to finish Parti- up the episode uh, with. Par- uh, the participation mystica. There we go. Yeah. So people, especially in Jungian psychology who are interested in alchemical archetypes and stuff, my experience, because I also started there in high school as well, I, uh, you know, being getting interested in philosophy, I was reading Nietzsche and Jung and all these other individuals at a very young age, 14, 15, 16, really developed a lot of my thought. And alchemy was so obscure for me for years approaching it from that angle. And the second that I stepped into the laboratory, so many of what I have now deemed as misconceptions or uh, conceptualizations around some of these alchemical concepts, they really became so much more grounded because I had a physical material that actually was giving me lucid imagery that I could interpret myself. And regardless of who was interpreting it in the room, the archetypes that were happening were exactly the same, just only applied to their own situations. And you could see that the takeaways were the exact same um, through different people besides myself. And it's been written like this. This is why alchemy has actually persisted either in underground or above ground pockets for centuries and centuries, you know, since time immemorial, is that you can't deny something once you have the experience of it. And so people can try to come and step into the laboratory and they can try and distance the the actual chemical processes that we're performing from the psychological and, and the spiritual ramifications. But the second I put on a distillation, they can feel it. They walk over to it. They start looking at it. They, oh, wow, imagination. And, oh, wow, this is just like rain. And the, the elucidation that this is all coming from nature, that it's repeated in the ecosystem, that this is happening internally, that it just streams to you. Especially if they've done a lot of Jungian research on the psyche and alchemy and psyche. Then they're just like, it's that one puzzle piece maybe that they've been missing where it just all comes together in this beautiful way and anchors in and comes into the physical world and into their physical body because they're there sitting, they're participating with it. That's exactly right. Wow. Hey, uh, this has been a beautiful podcast. I think uh, I would love to you to share what your offerings are if somebody wants to investigate the work of Phoenix Aurelius more. And uh, if they wanted to, I, I know you take apprentices from time to time. Uh, in 2020, you have some spots open. And uh, maybe some people that have listened to this, especially people that have done a lot of research into alchemy from the psychological perspective might want to use this as an opportunity to go deeper into the practical elements. Uh, somebody might be listening to this from in another country that wants to come over and, and learn all of this. Uh, how would they get in contact with you and what do you have? What do you have? What are your offerings? Hey, thank you so much for asking. Yeah. Anybody who's interested in learning a little bit more about this work or going a little deeper with it, I invite you to visit my website at phoenixaurelius.org. That's P-H-O-E-N-I-X-A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S.org. And uh, you will find on my website that I primarily focus on spagyria, which is the medicinal application of alchemy um, to herbs, plants, minerals, metals, and animal materials. Um, and it's all just for remedy purposes. And so right now I have, I've, I've been bringing the science into the light of uh, modernity by being able to perform some clinical research and performing research with all my clients. So currently people who purchase any of my spagyric tinctures, which I have a very, very large apothecary of alchemical and spagyric medicines, um, 
that funds my research. Um, and most of them are herbs that people are very, very familiar with, like reishi and lemon balm and rosemary and all these other things, where if they already know that that herb is good for a certain thing, they can buy the spagyric of it and know that it's going to be even much more potent and much more efficacious of it. And so for folks who aren't even familiar with spagyrics, you can browse the apothecary and definitely find something that suits your needs or that you're familiar with. Anything from, you know, modern herbs like kratom uh, and even ayahuasca I have on there, ayahuasca vine, to other things that uh, like hemp um, and, you know, lemon balm, rosemary, all, all of the other ones. We've got just about everything that you can imagine in that apothecary and it's constantly growing. Um, so that's the first thing that I do. And then uh, the other thing that I do, like you were saying, is that I educate other people in how to perform spagyric medicine, how to get into the laboratory. And I also teach about the medical cosmology of spagyric medicine and how we can incorporate that in our society today to provide an alternative, a very efficacious alternative based on my research to modern pharmaceutical science and Western medicine. Um, so that's, uh, that's a big part of it. Um, people, uh, who are interested in learning, I have a bunch of great group workshops in 2020, just visit my group workshops page on the education dropdown tab. And, uh, I also do one-on-one, -on -one, uh, immersion apprenticeships where you come and you live with me for three days here in our facility downstairs in the laboratory. And, uh, I instruct you in a 20 hour, uh, 20 plus hour, sometimes it takes a little bit more. Uh, immersion program where you are walking through this and creating eight to 10 different grades of alchemical medicine uh, in those 20 hours working virtually nonstop. So um, yeah, I, and then I, you know, I teach classes and do radio things like this and other stuff from time to time. So just, just keep an eye out for my name. You'll see me around. Great. Hey, thank you, Phoenix. I really appreciate your time. I think I'm going to take you up on some of these journeys into the alchemy process uh, it's just been tugging at me, tugging at my soul. I feel comfortable when even my quinoa is like fermenting and I'm making kombucha. I, I don't know, like some part of it, I'm like, I am in the process of making this. This thing I am making, it is happening over here and there's life happening because I exist. And there's some part of that that's beyond just my dog walking around. Like somehow like life is actually becoming as opposed to I'm caring for life. I'm in the process of creation. And uh, that's really beautiful to see it in the physical world as opposed to just these structures and organizations where I'm gathering people. So really appreciate your time. Thank you, Phoenix. I look forward to seeing you in Noriana soon. Hey, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure being on your show, Zach. Thank you, Phoenix. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. And please follow us to hear future episodes where we discuss topics such as alternative states of consciousness achieved through dance, intention, and shamanic practices, sacred economics, dream work, trauma healing, building community, permaculture, healthy and compassionate living and eating practices, somatic and alternative healing modalities, politics, psychology, mythology, and more. Our work is focused on the liberation of spirit, a return to the sacred, which is a constant collective inquiry. We aim both in person and on this podcast to plant and water the seeds of liberation from economic inequality, trauma, systemic conditioning, addiction, loss of soul, loss of meaning, hopelessness, helplessness, isolation, shame, nightmares, guilt, and a return to glimpses of your birthright, of dignity, joy, community, collaboration, equality, and constantly beautifying new world where you are not alone. And always, if you're ever in the Salt Lake City area, come join us for yoga, dance, or in the garden. 
a community of beautiful souls are here to welcome you. We gather in community Wednesday, 6 p.m. till 10 p.m. and Sunday, 11 to 3 p.m. And we have a vegan brunch or vegan dinner after every event. Our gatherings are all ages and are of no religious affiliation. We look forward to seeing you.